You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. My guest today is Dr. Betsy Maxwell, who's an assistant professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and an attending physician in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at CHOP. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. So there's a lot to talk about with IBD in primary care. So first off, the incidence of IBD seems to be increasing. So what are some of the theories about why that might be happening? So in terms of the etiology of IBD, we do believe that there's an overlap among genetic factors, the immune system and how that relates to the lining of the GI tract, and some environmental triggers. So that, I know we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, but that includes the microbiome, that includes infectious processes that someone may have been exposed to over time, antibiotic exposures, probably diet. So there's a lot of interplay amongst all of these factors that in a genetically predisposed person likely contribute to the evolution and the development of IBD in that particular person. Population-based studies do suggest that IBD is unevenly distributed throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So the highest disease rates do occur in Western countries, though it seems incidence is rising in all parts of the world. And there's a theory that environmental changes, such as possibly westernization of the diet sort of everywhere at this Mm -hmm. point and effects on the gut microbiome may be playing a role in that. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. I mean, so you mentioned microbiome a few times. So Mm -hmm. what role does the microbiome, which is a hot topic right now, Mm -hmm. play in the risk of developing IBD? So studies have definitely shown that patients with IBD um, have more um, taxa in certain phyla, more sort of inflammatory type Um, bacteria, and then a decrease in representation of more health-promoting bacteria. Mm -hmm. But it's not fully clear how and when and why all of of that evolution happens. Mm -hmm. So I think there are a lot of opportunities um, once we can sort of understand the process for how that happens and then what we can do at various points to interrupt that process or steer it in a different way so Mm -hmm. that this can actually become... um, an angle for therapy. And that's something that people have so many questions about. And there's a lot of active research going on um, in that area right now. Mm. It's it's still in progress. Stay tuned. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. What is the genetic susceptibility of IBD? And kind of on that note, in primary care, when we see children whose parents have IBD or a first degree relative, like a sibling, do we need to do any special screening in that population? Like, are they at higher risk that we need to be concerned? Yeah, so there are some IBD-specific identified genes at this point, but we're not at the level where those specific genes are screened for routinely in Mm. populations. Um, I think in primary care, probably the most important thing that you can do are things that you're already doing, which is paying close attention to any GI symptoms that are mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And then critical to pediatrics, and and again, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but 
uh, paying close attention to growth patterns. Mm -hmm. This growth deceleration can be a really early but subtle sign um, of, of early stages of gut inflammation. So that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, family history is always going to be important. It's something that we ask about, something that, that primary care docs will ask about too. Um, and it matters. I mean, if there are multiple um, family members with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or both on one or both sides of the family, I mean, it definitely raises your gets your radar up about thinking about IBD for that particular patient. But there are plenty of patients who are the index case in their family where they don't have a family history. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned a lot of the symptoms of IBD. And we know, though, that in pediatrics, IBD may not always present like we learned in textbooks or it may not be as classic of a presentation. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the subtle ways that IBD may present in primary care? I think probably the most subtle thing that comes up a lot in primary care is the growth angle. Uh -huh. So I think, um, you know, paying attention to growth parameters is something that's done as part of every well check, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in pediatrics, we expect that a child is going to gain weight and get taller mm -hmm. um, with every visit. Mm -hmm. um, and so when there seems to be a disruption or even just a deceleration, sometimes mm -hmm. there's like a really subtle... Um, deceleration of linear growth velocity mm -hmm. um, that can be sometimes hard to pick up but sometimes not you know mm -hmm. sometimes you can look back and um, see that a patient hasn't grown taller in the last two years and mm -hmm. you know and even if there are not really overt or significant GI symptoms like Crohn's disease should should at least cross your mind mm -hmm. as a consideration mm -hmm. um, but then like you said there are a lot of patients who will have classic symptoms of pain and bloody stools and weight loss and mm -hmm. sometimes fevers and some of the extra intestinal manifestations of IBD. Mm -hmm. And those can sometimes be a little bit more obvious. Um, but I think growth is one of those subtle findings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, signs of perianal disease, which you won't necessarily know about unless you look, mm -hmm. um, can also be a, a sign mm -hmm. that a patient might not bring to your attention that you might actually discover on a physical exam. Right. Um, and the extra intestinal manifestations, which sort of touched on briefly, but um, particular types of rashes, erythema mm -hmm. nodosum, sometimes it's sometimes it could specifically and only be that. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's also not, you know, pathognomonic for mm -hmm. Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, but it um, but it can be the, the first presenting sign right. of so chronic. So raise some flags. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And with the growth failure that you're talking about, I think my classic teaching was with GI etiologies in general, that you see the weight drop off first and then the height? Is that sort of the pattern that you see in patients with IBD? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely. I'll, and so when you actually do start to see um, linear height or linear growth um, impairment, um, it's almost more noticeable and mm -hmm. worrisome. Mm -hmm. um, and But sometimes that can be subtle at first. Like right. Sometimes it's just a slowdown as opposed to a lack of, of right. height growth. Okay. So another tricky thing in primary care is that a history of abdominal pain, diarrhea, sometimes even rectal bleeding or weight loss may present in both IBD and IBS. So how can we, without a scope, differentiate this diagnosis in primary care? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be tough. I think aside from rectal bleeding associated with constipation, mm -hmm. I think rectal bleeding 
Uh, and of course, that's a really common scenario. Right. So many pediatric patients can be constipated. Um, but rectal bleeding would not typically be a feature of IBS, okay. um, but certainly could be accompanied with constipation, which mm-hmm. is, of course, really common. Mm-hmm. Um, and weight loss, I think, and certainly you know issues with linear growth, far less likely to be a component of IBS, mm-hmm. although there are certain people with chronic functional abdominal pain who do limit their intake because right. of their symptoms. And so, you know, sometimes I'll actually ask patients, you know, you're losing weight, like, do you know why that's happening? Like, mm-hmm. Are you eating less? And if you're eating less, is it mm-hmm. because if you eat, you'll have more diarrhea? Mm-hmm. Is it because if you eat, you have more pain? Right. Or is this weight loss that is sort of unexplained and you, and you can't figure out why? Mm-hmm. Sometimes getting the families or the patients to sort of ex- help you sort that out can be pretty helpful. Um, I was just gonna say, and you're right. I mean, without a scope, that truly is, you know, the diagnostic gold standard to, to sort that out. When you were talking about inflammation, it reminded me, um, how helpful are screening lab tests, things like CBC, ESR, CRP, or CMP, in differentiating IBD from other disorders that have some overlapping findings? I mean, I think the laboratory studies are important, um, and are one of the first steps that you might take in, in an evaluation of a patient who you think might have IBD. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the typical biochemical abnormalities include leukocytosis, anemia, thrombocytosis, hypoalbuminemia. Mm-hmm. The, the serum inflammatory markers, SED rate and CRP, are often elevated, of course, mm-hmm. but not always. Um, I think important to mention is that Normal labs does not necessarily rule out the possibility of IBD. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I actually was just looking back through a, a chapter that I helped to write, and we referenced one study that showed that um, mild UC, mild Crohn's, you know, somewhere between 20 and 50% of those patients um, might have had all normal hemoglobin, platelet count, albumin, mm-hmm. and DSR at time of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's, you know, there's... Right. There's going to be variation, and in, in each case obviously has to be thought through carefully. And then, like you said, there's, of course, going to be other systemic processes, um, rheumatologic diseases, mm-hmm. infection, whether chronic or acute, that are also going to cause those similar lab abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think hypoalbuminemia in particular, if you're thinking about Crohn's disease, mm-hmm. is noteworthy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that maybe a little bit more specific for um, GI inflammation. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of other tests that I see uh, coming from GI and some of our residents even in the in the ED setting. So tell us a little bit about calprotectin and calgranulin C and how you use these to decide who needs endoscopy. Yeah, so great question. So the, those substances are markers of gut inflammation detected in stool. Um, part of the S100 protein family. Um, and those these are proteins that are released by activated neutrophils, mm-hmm. but are more gut-specific than than serum markers like SED rate and CRP. Okay. So that's why we, we really like them. Mm-hmm. Particularly calprotectin, I think, is the more clinically available mm-hmm. marker, although I've seen both sort of described in literature as, as helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, we think about calprotectin specifically one, as a, as a screening test, as sort of a non-invasive screening test um, for gut inflammation. 
Um, but you know, next level is you know, once you've determined that somebody actually has a diagnosis of IBD, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes the calprotectin can be used to monitor how that person is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, based on what where they start as far as how elevated that is, um, can we use that to follow their response to therapy? Mm-hmm. So. You know, different labs have different cutoff values, and you'll even definitely hear GI doctors who will say, yes, the lab cutoff for calprotectin is 50, but I'm not that excited about a calprotectin of 75. So, mm-hmm. you know, studies have tried to look at sensitivity and specificity and, and really what are the what is the calprotectin number that you're going to really start to get concerned about. Right. Um, and we do think it's somewhere between a level of 200 to 300 where, you know, if it's higher than that, um, I would seriously consider uh, endoscopic evaluation as the next step to mm-hmm. make a diagnosis of IBD. So, so we do really like it. In primary care, if we were maybe not concerned enough yet to refer a patient to GI, but we wanted to start doing some screening, should we be using calprotectin in our kind of first batch of labs, or how do we use that? I think so. Um, You know, know, when it first became available, there was some, and there actually still can be issues with insurance coverage of Mm -hmm. of paying for the test. So a lot of times I'll give, I will actually give the patients the CPT code just to say, hey, um, you may want to just check with your insurance if this is if this is going to be a problem. Right. Some insurance companies will still consider it as experimental, whereas in practice we really do feel that it's valuable and, mm-hmm. and useful for us. Sure. Um, but but certainly, I mean, I think um, in a patient with abdominal pain, chronic diarrhea, bloody stools, you know, getting the basic set of labs that we talked about, mm-hmm. um, ruling out infection which mm-hmm. includes C. difficile infection, mm-hmm. and checking a calprotectin, you know, that, and, you know, based on those results, whether normal or abnormal, I mean, that's a great, um, that's a great start as far as information to have, mm-hmm. along with growth charts, like those would be the things that we would want to see mm-hmm. in a new patient that you'd be referring to us. Great. Um, tell us more about the very early onset IBD program. This is something that was new to me, so I'm curious about it. Yeah, so it's, and it's really grown uh, even even in the last few years. So mm-hmm. so we really think that there is a different etiology and disease course and process for patients who are diagnosed um, at a younger age. Mm-hmm. So often the cutoff is five and under, but okay. you know, there's some leeway there. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're likely to potentially have different presentation often a more severe presentation, the disease course can be different and not necessarily, they may not necessarily respond to the same therapies that um, older pediatric onset IBD population would. Mm. Um, There's a shift, whereas sort of the multifactorial etiology that I talked about at the beginning, Mm -hmm. that's sort of the the classic model that we think for uh, pediatric and adult IBD. But in the younger population, they're more likely to actually have significant defects in their immune system Mm -hmm. or fewer genes or even a single gene that's actually driving the process Mm -hmm. because they just present often sicker and, of course, younger. Mm-hmm. So so the the management of those patients can be really complicated and takes mm-hmm. a really specialized team. Mm-hmm. So that is something that has grown in the last few years here at CHOP, and it's, and it's wonderful. So the clinic um, it exists as its own clinic within the Center for Pediatric IBD here, mm-hmm. um, and there's close collaboration between um, GI IBD specialists who focus on this area, both clinically and, and in their research, mm-hmm. um, as well as immunology, mm-hmm. actually physically in the clinic, seeing the kids and collaborating with our team. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's important and our, our 
the EO IBD clinic gets a lot of referrals from, mm-hmm. from all over because these are really tough cases and really sick children, often mm-hmm. babies who are, mm-hmm. who are just really sick. And, mm-hmm. um, and so and our VEO group is, is doing some amazing work. Great. It's awesome to know that that exists and yeah. that you have that resource. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about treatment since you mentioned that um, getting away a little bit from the, the early onset. But, okay. Um, are there any specific diets that kids with IBD who already have the diagnosis of IBD should follow? So it probably doesn't surprise you that this question comes up all the time. Yeah. This is what families and patients like really want to know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll just take a step back and just say that you know, adequate nutrition is important for growth and development in all kids, of course, but but particularly in the management of IBD. Right. Um, and for right now, there's no one specific single diet that's mm-hmm. either causative or, or curative for IBD. Okay. Although there are certain diets, certain foods that we think um, are helpful in the management of IBD. Um, but, you know, a lot of times what I'll tell families is it's, it's actually in some ways not that exciting in terms of, of what we recommend because it is sort of healthy whole foods um, are likely to be beneficial. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean protein, dairy as tolerated, um, adequate hydration. Mm-hmm. Um, people always ask, like, are there anything, is there anything that I, that I can't have? Mm-hmm. Um, popcorn is a big no-no just because, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how hard you chew, you really can't pulverize those mm-hmm. those kernels, and that's a concern anytime that there could be narrowing of the intestines from Crohn's disease or, mm-hmm. or even you see the, you know, we want to make sure that the foods that kids are eating are not going to put them at risk for worsening symptoms. Mm-hmm. So whole nuts and large seeds, especially in large quantities, are not, not great. Um, but otherwise, you know, other things in moderation, um, like highly processed foods should mm-hmm. be eliminated or in moderation, mm-hmm. red meat in moderation. So, you know, to the extent that it's practical and reasonable for people in, in their busy lives, mm-hmm. you know, I usually try to say whole foods, fresh foods are going to be better than processed foods and foods with, you know, a long list of ingredients, yeah. half of which you don't recognize. Are there any nutritional deficiencies in particular that people with IBD are at risk for? Yes. So vitamin D screening is part of our sort of universal screening for mm-hmm. patients who have IBD. Um, we always want to make sure that we're looking for risk of decreased bone mineral density. So mm-hmm. getting a DEXA scan at time of diagnosis is, is part of our practice. Mm-hmm. Calcium, making sure that patients get enough calcium is important. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes patients need iron, folic acid, and then depending on potentially a surgical history, like if there's been resection of part of the small bowel, you mm-hmm. know, folate and B12 might come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the main ones that I could think of. Great. So what's new in the treatment of IBD? Treatment for IBD is really complicated. There are mm-hmm. a lot of options. Um, we do try to make it as individualized as possible. So mm-hmm. it's, it's usually a long conversation between the patient, the family, and, and our team to figure out, you know, what's the best way to get the inflammation under control mm-hmm. and keep it that way so that the patient can be healthy um, and do all the things in their life that they want to do because mm-hmm. that's our goal. So there's medication. There are some dietary therapies. Some patients eventually or even at outset may need surgical treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can hit a couple of highlights as far as some of the newer drug therapies that we're using. So vetalizumab is a gut-specific anti-adhesion molecule, which inhibits migration of T-cells into the gut tissue. And Mm -hmm. it's given by infusion. Ustekinumab or Stellara is another newer therapy approved for Crohn's disease in September of 2016. It's a pretty favorable side effect profile so far. Mm -hmm. Um, And the mechanism of action for that is that it 
prevents binding of some pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-12 and IL-23, to their receptors. Mm -hmm. And that's given with an induction dose through IV, and then maintenance injections are done sub-Q at home with the family. Fortunately, um, new things are always coming out. Mm -hmm. So I think, of course, eventually, someday, hopefully soon, we would love to have a cure for IBD. But Mm -hmm. in the meantime, um, you know, there have been new therapies coming out all the time. So Mm -hmm. I think um, that's been great. So we're glad to have people like you on top of that <laughs> research. <laughs> Not necessarily me, but a lot of people that I work with, okay. uh, which is one of the wonderful things about working here. Yeah. So in primary care, as you know, we do a lot of immunizations. So are there any special considerations for immunizing children with IBD? Yes. So this is a great question. Basically, we want patients to get vaccines on schedule mm-hmm. um, with a little interruption as possible. So all non-live vaccines should be encouraged. Okay. Um, this includes Hep A, Gardasil. Um, you know, the, the major caveat is that patients who are on steroids, other immunosuppressives, biologic therapy, can't get a live vaccine. Right. Um, but really doesn't come up that often. So mm-hmm. they cannot get flu mist, which from what I understand was not even really used very much this past flu season at right. all anyway. So flu shot is recommended annually, but it mm-hmm. has to be injected. Okay. Varicella is a tricky one, obviously, because that's live. Although mm-hmm. for most patients, unfortunately, except for the really little guys, right. most patients will have already gotten their, right. their doses of varicella, which is great. Um, Same for MMR. Yeah, right. And, and then otherwise... Um, Strep pneumo, so we do recommend the 23-valent pneumococcal vaccine mm-hmm. um, for patients on immunosuppressive therapy. Um, so that's that's something that, that a patient might actually come back to you with a request from us right. for that. Mm-hmm. But really, other than that, um, routine. Yeah, r- very routine. Like okay. that, you know, that should be that should be the take home for that. Great. So when we suspect a patient may have IBD, maybe we've um, done some of the pre- preliminary labs that we just talked about. Um, or we have a more concerning case, um, when should we refer to GI in the process? I mean, I will say really anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think duration of symptoms, severity, concerns about growth, mm-hmm. um, in a situation of diarrhea, if the infectious studies have been sent and are negative mm-hmm. and the diarrhea is persisting, um, you know, that would certainly be a scenario mm-hmm. to send. Um, you know, if this is a patient with even if it seems relatively nonspecific but persistent abdominal pain, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is what we do. So we, we can help with that. Right. So, you know, I don't think there's one right answer for, for you know, it'll depend on each, right. each situation. But, you know, if you have a concern for IBD, they can come anytime. Mm-hmm. We try to be as available as possible to get any new patient in, but particularly if mm-hmm. a pediatrician is to call, that is certainly something that we we will work to get a patient in in mm-hmm. an expedited fashion if during the conversation with you, it seems seems clear that this patient needs to be seen mm-hmm. very soon. That's something that we can fortunately accommodate just because we were able to create that availability. Great. That's good to know yeah. for everyone in the referral network. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for telling us more about pediatric IBD. I know this is something that I think we all see a lot of in residency, and then we sort of forget about a little bit in primary care, so it's nice to be reminded about when to keep this in our differential, um, how to evaluate it in primary care, and when to refer. So thanks for going over all those helpful tidbits. We will link to the pediatric IBD program on our webpage, which is www.chop.edu slash podcast. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.